Talkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, episode 26. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is filmmaker Darren Lynn Bowsman, perhaps best known as the director of Saw 2, Saw 3, and Saw 4. And he holds the distinction of being the first filmmaker to come on No Prize from God. This wide-ranging conversation includes the strange occurrences on the set of his 2011 film, 11-11-11, the quasi-religious story of 2012's The Devil's Carnival, his fascination with the strange, the occult, and secret societies, some book recommendations, and the religious and possibly supernatural themes throughout his latest film, Death of Me, which stars Maggie Q, Alex Eso, and Luke Hemsworth. Yes, brother. Of Chris Hemsworth and Liam Hemsworth. Plus, we even got a few tidbits about the next installment in the Saw franchise, Spiral, starring Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson, set for release in 2021. I watched Death of Me. I loved it. It deals a lot with identity, perception of reality, faith healing. You'll hear about some of the influences on the film in this conversation as well. And let me tell you what inspired me to have Darren on the podcast. It's a little statement that the publicity team for Death of Me sent out in the run-up to the movie's release a few sentences written by Darren that resonated with me right away. It reads as follows. I have always been fascinated in belief, what people believe in, why they believe it, and the links they will go to for the things they believe in. I myself have a series of beliefs that people halfway across the world will consider insane, dangerous, or asinine. If you go back through and look at my library and my films, you will find this concept weaved into the last 10 years of my life and work. Death of Me's entire DNA is rooted in faith, the undying faith an island has for its well-being, prosperity, and survival. Upon reading the script, it tickled all parts of my mind that excited me. And more, it was thrilling and macabre, oh so macabre. After meeting with the film's producers and discussing our favorite horror films, it became obvious this was a film and opportunity I could not pass up. Not only was it a chance to film something in one of the most beautiful and unique locations I've ever set foot in, but get to work with some of the most fantastic and diverse group of actors and artists I've ever met. Death of Me is a special film. From the gorgeous cinematography from Jose David Montero, to the chilling score from madman Mark Seyfritz. I'm excited for the world to understand and know the secrets our film's island holds for its inhabitants. And let me tell you, he's not exaggerating about that score. One of my favorite horror film scores in recent memory. Remember, the best way you can support this podcast and the conversations we have on it is to like and subscribe and to leave a five-star rating and a nice review in Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. No Prize from God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the all-new revamped NoPrizeFromGod.com, which has information about all of the episodes, information about the podcast itself, and some blog posts about related topics. You can find No Prize From God on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. So here it is, my conversation with Darren Lynn Boseman. This is No Prize From God.
in searching the religion and spirituality categories in Apple Podcasts, you're confronted with any number of right-wing evangelical, you know, this and that, uh, prosperity gospel, a lot of self-help, new agey um, type stuff. And then, you know, your uh, kind of run-of-the-mill militant atheism of the last yeah. few years. And in scrolling, you know, they always say the best movies, the best bands, it all comes from like you making the thing that you wish existed. Yeah. And that was the genesis of this podcast is I was like, well, where's the podcast for the rest of us? You know, where, where I could have on, you know, HR from Bad Brains or, you know, all these people that I've encountered in my life who are creative, who make music, make movies that have a unique perspective on this stuff that isn't in the orthodoxy, you know, you can't put it in a box yeah. of like, Oh, it's Sam Harris. Oh, it's yeah. Joel Olstein. You know, it's like, yeah, no, it's, it's nuanced, you know, it, it's interesting. So you're my first filmmaker on, and I'm happy to have you on having watched this film, which is what made me really interested in it. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, uh, we're both uh, fellow Midwesterners. I grew we're... up in Indiana. Oh, in nice. Dallas. And uh, I moved out to California in 2001. And I've found since I've been here that my favorite people are not people from the Midwest and not people from California, but people from the Midwest who have moved to California. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's funny because there, there is a, I, I, there's a sect of us out here. Uh, yeah. And it's, um, that, that's funny you say that because I was just talking to someone the other day about how I've met more Midwest people out here than I actually knew when I was in the Midwest and yes. doing, doing that thing. Totally. Yeah. When I, when I first got out here and my, my first job was as a reporter at MTV and my office mate, just luck of the draw, grew up in Iowa. And it was like, he and I, it was like we grew up next door to each other, you know? Yeah. Um, and I don't think I'd even been to Iowa more than once or twice. And, uh, and we're still really close friends, you know, 20 years later. And it, yeah, it's just interesting how um, there's something about certain values and things I think that we're instilled with in the Midwest, you know, hard work and whatever. But then also that drive to get the hell out of there. Well, that's, <laughs> hold on a second. I just lost you. Let me, let me, I'm going to hear you, but hold on. What did I do with your window? <laughs> hold on. <laughs> it's behind the, other windows. Uh, no, everything is closed, but I have, uh, oh, there you go. We're back. Um, no, the, uh, you know, that was the thing with the Midwest is that I, I still feel like I have those Midwest ideals and upbringings, but living in LA. So part of me is, has a hatred of Los Angeles and disdain because they don't have those same values. And the other part of me is when I go back to the Midwest, I got to get the fuck back to LA. I can't handle this. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It, it's the ultimate definition of, uh, you know, there's the, there's the saying, nice place to visit, wouldn't want to live there. The Midwest yeah. for me is a nice place to grow up. Don't want to live there anymore. It's so funny. So I, we talked about it with my kids. Like I want, I wish my kids had the childhood that I had in the Midwest. Um, but again, I would want them to leave there at the time of 16 and, yeah. and not return. And there's some crazy, I just got back from the Midwest. Literally, I, I did a road trip with my son. And oh, you, nice. get, you get some wackos. I, I, you know, you drive through, you drive through, I guess what they call Trump's America mm -hmm. um, on the way from Los Angeles. And there's things out there that I just look at and I'm like, how was I around this for so long? And it, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And it felt normal. Yeah. A, a friend of mine, another Midwest transplant, I steal this quote from him all the time. Uh, when he, when he first got out here, he said, someone asked him, so how are you, how are you adjusting to California? 
And he said, dude, I was adjusting to Indiana my whole life. Yeah. It's <laughs> That sums it up perfectly. Not to disparage our great places where we come from. And that's, that's the interesting thing. I think the duality of the things we love and appreciate about those places. And, and yeah. But also what, what drove us here. And, and now it seems like there's an exodus in the other direction. You hear about people leaving LA for. People, everyone's NC leaving. And, where do you live? What part of town? Uh, I'm in uh, the north part of Orange County next to Seal Beach. So, yeah, I mean, I would get the fuck out of LA right now if I could. Um, yeah. You know, in fact, my wife and I are looking at trying to leave where we live and move an hour outside, whether it be towards Agora or Thousand Oaks, just because uh, from it's not the same place it was 10 years ago. And yeah. now you complicate that with everything going on in the world, and it's really not the same place it was. Um, and it's, it's actually going to be honest with you. It's a little frightening. Like I have a five-year-old kid and we go out bike riding and, and I'm more scared on my own street than I ever have found myself in any place I've ever lived. Yeah. Um, so, you know, looking to try to get back out and try to find an in-between of my upbringing and what, uh, where I live now. Yeah. My kids are seven and 12 and, uh, my ex and I moved to Orange County about five years ago to be, uh, closer to her family, but we were for 10 years, we were out in Temecula, which is, you know, hour and a half outside of LA in the other direction, southeast. And, I, and one of the things I liked about that area was it, it felt very Midwesterny, yeah. um, you know, while still being in California and also still being desert climate. Absolutely. Um, so, so growing up, what were some of your first introductions to, you know, concepts about life's biggest questions, life, death, what does it all mean? Where do we come from? Uh, what were some I, of your early well I grew say, up indoctrination but you know what were you kind of raised with and what did you find for yourself my grandfather was a Baptist minister um, oh, wow. but he had retired by the time that I remember um, my I grew up going to church every Sunday uh, doing the whole confirmation thing um, so church was not even a question like we had to go to church every Sunday However, my parents were very lax, I think, in their beliefs. Um, my mother was very religious, uh, but they would still, you know, um, it was never at a point of some of my cohorts or people that I grew up with that were over the top in their belief systems. We were still watching, you know, R-rated movies when I was 10 years old. And there was, there was no, so it wasn't like um, oppressive in any, anything like that. It was just, it was, you go to church on Sunday. That was what it was. Um, then, uh, so I grew up in kind of a religious household, but the older I got and the more that I became busy with life, the less and less I started going throughout high school. I just stopped going to church altogether. Um, and then, uh, you know, so, so I did grow up in that, in that kind of respect. Uh, being like my first kind of challenging thing, I'll, I'll tell you, my wife is Jewish. Um, and so there was, there's huge differences about just, just the way we live our lives, things like that. And coming to Los Angeles, you get such a different outlook than you do when you're in the Midwest or when you're in Kansas. It's like, it's like an entirely different planet almost. Um, because you live in this bubble and you think, Oh, this is how everyone is. This is, this is the world. Um, but I think the older that I got and the more that I was able and specifically to access information, um, the more that I began to question everything and really found myself struggling for what I not only actually believed in, but my own, I guess, moralistic core. Um, you got to think that 20, 30 years ago, I, I was in college 
when I started getting emails on a weekly basis, not a daily, but I would check my email every Monday or Friday. It wasn't a big deal. Um, now I sit in front of the computer 10 hours a day and I research. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that the more access to information, the more that, that, you know, my beliefs in life and everything began to change. Indeed. Yeah. It, it's funny you say that about the email too. I remember a, a point in my adult life, you know, dating both of us, I suppose, but where I used to walk a couple blocks to a nearby computer lab at a university I didn't attend to get in and check my email. <laughs> you know, that's how, that's how kind of unimportant it was. You know, I would do that maybe every other day. Yeah. In yeah. it's, it's a scary thing because, you know, I have, I have a son and a daughter and my daughter's two and my son's five and they both are, are just savants on the iPad and mm -hmm. I'm locking my phone. And, you know, last night I finished a documentary on Netflix called the social dilemma yeah, which is, which is I highly recommend it for anyone either with kids or without, but just about what's happening to our world due to the uh, accessibility of information and social media. Um, and it's scary because part of me thinks that I grew up kind of in the middle for the first 17 years of my life. I did not have, um, it, you know, I remember that I would go outside for, for eight o'clock in the morning to eight o'clock at night. And I never thought about TV or thought about going on the internet. Uh, now I don't go outside less than 10 minutes without checking my phone or doing whatever. Mm -hmm. And now my son is, is only lived in a world where he has this constantly inundating him. So, you know, it's, it's a, I'm, I'm concerned about what it looks like when he's my age now. Yeah, man, absolutely. And especially when, you know, and this is a, maybe a, a rudimentary example, but it's demonstrative of, I think some of the bigger things in play you're, that documentary, which has been on the tip of everyone's tongues in the last 24 hours, it seems like. Uh, I didn't grow up, despite growing up in Indiana, I didn't grow up into sports. And in the last few years, one of my best friends has made it his mission to get me to like football. And, and, and once again, he lives, he lives in LA, works in the entertainment industry. He's from Cincinnati originally. And uh, so I've been going over to his place and watching Bengals games with um, him and his wife and, and friends and stuff for the last couple of years. So anyway, I tell you this to say that today, for the first time in my entire life, I Googled uh, Burrow jersey, the new quarterback for the Bengals. First time I've ever Googled any sports jersey, NFL, anything in my life. Looked, clicked on one link, left the window open to go back to later. And an hour later, I'm on Twitter, and the first promoted post in my Twitter feed was from the Bengals about well, that quarterback. I will tell you that it's scarier than that, and this is why the future scares me. Um, I guess the present scares me. I was in my room uh, last week, week and a half ago, and I, I've, I collect watches, and I looked down at one of these watch cases that I had, and I realized that one of my favorite watch straps, one of the favorite watches that I have strap broke, and I, I said to my wife, I need to get a new watch strap for that. Now, my phone wasn't in the room, nor did I, nor did I have my Apple iWatch on. Um, so cut to the first time I opened the computer after that. First time, go to Facebook, every ad is for watch straps, every single ad. Now, my phone wasn't in the room with me, so it could not have been listening. So my thing is, what, what crazy smart device do I have that I'm not even realizing is listening to the shit that I'm saying? That is too strange of a coincidence that, that all of a sudden I mention a watch strap and it's all watch straps on the right side of the screen. Uh, yeah, it's listening. It's, it knows everything. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think for people, us Gen Xers in particular, having grown up with the Terminator franchise, 
and the running man and uh you know uh what did i just rewatch the other day night of the comet i just watched that for the first time in a long time you know it's like we're film is part of the way that we communicate and 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 get our ideas across and share ideas with one another and having grown up speaking that language of some of those particular films it makes this stuff that much more frightening because you do hear well hey i don't you know if it's uh if it's data mining and figuring out stuff that i like and recommending things i want to buy like that's that's easy that's making my life more convenient and it's like yeah what, but no. what's the what's the sinister thing but behind it's, that it, it's yeah. not and this is what people say to me i get in fights with a lot of people on this a lot of my friends and, and even my wife they're like i don't have anything to hide i don't care that's yeah that's bullshit everyone has something to hide every single person has something to hide that they don't want out there and the irreputable damage that can occur if your private information got out. And I'll give you an example. Um, whether it be uh, text messages when my wife and I fight, we send each other really shitty text messages. Or if I had a bad experience with an actor and I, I tell my agent, I fucking hate this person, blah, 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 blah. We all say things that we think are said in private and are not for public consumption. But the reality is someone has all that private information. Every time you use Siri, every time you do a search online, they, it's, it's terrifying. Um, there, was a, there was a documentary that was a few years ago, and I think it's called Terms and Conditions May Apply. And it talks about how Google amasses your search history into what it is. It basically fills in the gaps of what you're doing. So insecurities that you have as a person, um, you know, if, if you're Googling, you know, how do I lose 20 pounds? Uh, what is this rash? Whatever that thing mm. is, Google knows more about you than anyone else. And I think that that is terrifying because they're putting profiles about you out there and they're selling those profiles. And that to me is terrifying that you think you have these secrets, but is there any secret that I have that Google doesn't know about me? I don't know. Yeah. And that to me is, that to me is terrifying. Absolutely. And I think you also make a, a great point in terms of speech in general. And this is something that I think about a lot often is there are, you know, kind of these silos, these certain relationships you have with people where you're going to say and do things that you wouldn't do in other relationships. And a lot of times that gets misconstrued as, oh, you know, this person's two-faced or you're saying something here that you wouldn't say to that person's face. I think, no, it, it's, it's more emblematic of having nuanced different relationships that you get different things from. Of course, there's the other extreme of being totally fake and having 10 different faces to people. But in, in your, you know, case in point, a professional relationship that you have with your agent where you want to vent about an actor that you had a bad experience with and make sure your agent knows you're not interested in repeating that experience. It doesn't mean you're being duplicitous that you're not calling that actor and, and chewing them out. Um, so yeah, so there is that idea that like certain types of private speech that we're having among friends to various ends, uh, yeah, so the you, idea of that stuff getting out there is, is terrible. You, you mean you look at as well, um, you know, this thing that's happening now, which I think is a great thing and we should purge the system full of um, horrific people and, and redistribute that power from the people of Weinsteins and all of this. But you look back over the case of 30 years from when I started using Twitter at, when I was 16 or whatever, whatever the social media MySpace to now, and you realize that things that, that were said, be it on, on a public platform or private messages are being used and they're being mm. used and people are being taken down. And it's, it's a scary thing to realize now the, it almost feels like there is an out of control thing that you no longer, there is no such thing as privacy. There's no such thing as private conversation and that anything can be taken out of context. And I had my first kind of experience with that a few years ago. I was uh, doing an interview 
And uh, and this is the this is a bad example of what was said, but I mentioned something that we were talking about. Uh, how you doing today? And I said something. I said something like, "Not good. I don't feel good." And they said, "Why?" And I said, "Too much tequila and really bad Mexican food." And then they the quote that was taken said something like, um, "Bowsman's down on Mexican," or so, it said something like that. And then you'd have to click in the article to read what I actually said. But most people don't click in the article; they read yeah. those headlines. And so it's, it's terrifying because now I find myself with technology, second guessing, third guessing, fourth guessing, every single statement or everything, anything I type, um, self-censoring myself just completely. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a weird, it's a weird time in the world we live in. Indeed. And, and, that's, um, and, and that circles us right back around to Google as well, because a headline like that is being written uh, because it's SEO friendly and because whatever outlet you did that that interview with inevitably depends on Google ad revenue and they have to do all the right things for the Google algorithms to, for their site to have the visibility that's going to generate the traffic that's going to pay their bills. And it all, yeah, it all kind of goes back to this uh, homogenization and and corporatization of, of so much of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, And this does all tie into the theme of this podcast pretty well in terms of belief and uh, you know, some of these, things that maybe there are religious allegories for throughout different holy texts from different faith traditions about apocalypse and the end of the world and, you know, things that fundamentalists take literally and and others not so much. I feel like so much of that's kind of happening around us, not to be too doomsday about it, but even what we're talking about in terms of privacy and and AI and being tracked and all of that, you know, it's... it's funny, all of my, and not all, but I would say the last four or five of my movies have all kind of um, dealt with my own shit as it relates to faith and religion mm-hmm. and what I'm going through in my own mind um, constantly. In uh, this movie, definitely being one of them as well, which I think kind of gets into uh, the idea of belief. Uh, it's easy to look at any culture and, and, and call them ridiculous or think that their beliefs are absurd but then you look at like i grew up believing that if i if i asked wishes to a man in the sky he would cure my parents cancer how is that any more ridiculous than some of these other things that we're led to believe and again part of my fascination with the internet has brought for me is it's allowed me to go down a deep dark rabbit hole of beliefs and religion and Mm -hmm. uh other cultures what they believe uh and i think it's a it is a dark rabbit hole because uh Right when I think I have it figured out, I, I realize and read something else that either invalidates my current belief or opens me up to something completely different that I wasn't thinking about at all. The fact, the fact that you can do that, though, I think is so key. I think the, the biggest danger in philosophical thought and theological thought is certainty. And that's something that I've come to in my adult life very recently, just in the last few years. Or certainty is the enemy. For all these years where I thought that what I was searching for was certainty and for you know, knowing the the big answers to the big questions, I've started to find that I'm, you know, was maybe asking the wrong questions and that I'm more comfortable in the mystery and in the uncertainty and the doubt of all of this stuff than arriving at some conclusion where it's like, okay, here's what it all means. And Well, know. I think that that's where you get fanatical people that you see on the news that, that to me seem kind of ridiculous sometimes. They're so sold in what it is they believe in, they'll accept no other explanation. Right. Uh, that's why I love the occult and esoteric is that I'm a huge fan. I collect old 
occult books and old Freemason stuff and old, you know, Tempest Bay. I collect all of these old things and I just, I love the aesthetic and look of them, but I love reading the text because you're like, oh shit, yeah, that actually makes sense. And it scares mm. me that that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, uh, again, a lot of these movies that I've kind of been dealing with, it's my own exploration into shit that I'm reading or rabbit holes that I've gone down. And I find it scary. Uh, I don't know if you saw Kevin. There's a movie Kevin Smith made it, I think, a few years ago called Red State, which yeah. is yeah, yeah, which, yeah. Which deals with again fanaticism and, and how far people go in their beliefs. Uh, you know, I try to be as open-minded as possible anytime I, you know, read anything because it's, you know, I don't. I think the one certainty is there is no certainty. You're never going to yes. know it. You're, you're not. Yeah. You're not going to figure it out in your lifetime. And a lot of us gravitate towards things just like we do in the news cycle that are predisposed to our confirmation bias, you know, so we yeah. might end up reading, you know, we're trying to deepen our knowledge about faith yeah. and what we believe we end up reading things that lean towards where we, what we want to think or where, or where we have been. So, yeah. I think that what you said is really key about just being open to new information and, and all of that. Um, when do you first remember becoming interested in uh, the more occult stuff, the more, esoteric kind of fringe out there i've always had that fascination as well from almost as long as i can remember so i've always loved the dark and the macabre and you know the the, the i think the earliest um i think the earliest kind of introduction into it is satanic panic kind of idea mm, yeah uh, you know the this you know there was a big craze of you know whether it be anton Levey or the the the, the any anything satan oriented because it's the easiest doorway into it because it's the it's the easiest thing to point out as bad and evil mm -hmm. um and so growing up in kansas uh there were always legends and rumors of oh that's a satanic temple or that there's a place in kansas called stole kansas if you if you don't know about it google it it's crazy it was supposedly this uh demonic church that was torn down and there's crazy stories around it um so in it, it, it back in the days when when horror movies were being made you know, if you were dealing with the occult, it was very much always Satanism, Satanism, Satanism. So I think that was the first kind of idea into it. Um, but as I got older, you realize it's not so white and black. Um, mm -hmm. it's, you know, the idea of the idea of a lot of Satanist belief isn't about a demon or anything like that. It's a way of life. It's putting yourself above all others. It's it's and so you start to realize that things were skewed from my memory as a kid. That it's, it wasn't as, as white and black as that. Um, but it started really for me, uh, I was a poser for most of my life in horror where, you know, <laughs> I loved Michael Myers and I loved Freddy Krueger. And so I made horror movies. Then I started dealing with weird occult kind of stuff and I realized I knew nothing about it. So um, I started researching and it started with secret societies always for me that mm. secret societies always had a belief and that belief uh, a lot of times skewed into esoteric kind of teachings and beliefs and those would lead me down rabbit holes of, of, you know, different, you know, different theories. Uh, 11, 11, 11, which is a terrible movie I made. Um, I think I actually kind of went crazy uh, making that movie because that was my first deep, deep dive into it where I was uh, just consuming as much information onto the weird and unexplained as I could. And that, and that um, was one that you wrote and directed. Also. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I was, I mean, that, that was, I, I, again, I, in, in retrospect, that, that was a, that, that whole experience of making that movie was crazy. We went to Spain and shot it. And I am very pragmatic in my belief and thought. I've never seen anything supernatural. I've never seen a UFO. But there was some crazy shit that took place on that movie that is so unexplainable. 
And couple that with the lack of sleep and my researching what, what was supposed to be researched in that movie, I kind of just lost my shit for a bit. And so it's a bad movie. What the, the experience of making it was as much more engaging uh, than what actually ended up on screen. Uh, but, but that movie kind of changed everything for me. And, and I think my belief system and researching things. Um, and that's where I started realizing the internet. Like I was changing years of belief based on new things that I was reading because I had access to them now, which I never had access to that kind of stuff before. Mm. So it was doing that movie that I actually started to see that my whole beliefs were changing at the same time. You know, what's interesting about that too is, is when you think about those, you know, classic sort of film folklore about supernatural horror films and, and their productions, you know, whether it's The Omen, uh, you know, The Exorcist, um, even, even going forward into something like The Crow, you know, these movies that deal with life and death and the occult and supernatural and all that sort of stuff. And then you hear about all these, you know, tragedies and mishaps and bizarre happenings. It's almost like the way you're describing the process of 11, 11, 11 is that it, it, it fit very much in that canon. Of, yeah, uh, you know, it just happens to be the themes of this movie and we're also living it as we're making the movie. Well, I will tell you that um, there's so much, but I could do four and a half hours on that movie and the weird shit that happened, but um, it was so crazy and it was so batshit insane, the things that were happening that the production company who was making the movie and distributing it would not put out the behind the scenes footage because it looks so staged. And, wow. and it was, it did like, I, you look at it and you're like, this isn't real. This can't be real. The shit that we're seeing right now. Um, we, uh, you know, one of the things that was crazy is this, the, the, the weeks leading up to the cinematographer arriving, he was a, an American cinematographer. I've worked with a ton named Joseph White. I was texting him and I was like, dude, you would not believe the shit happening out here. This is, it was, it was one location. It was a house. And I was like, you would not believe the shit happening out here. And he was like, it's bullshit, man. You're, you're falling into hype. You're crazy. You're crazy. You're crazy. Every day I was like, dude, you don't understand how fucked up this is. Joe shows up. Uh, he, we drive to the house and immediately he walks in and he stops. And he was just like, he's like, that's fucked up. And I was like, what? He's like, I feel it. He's like, you walk in and you feel it. But wow. so, so he goes through, we're walking through the house and he was like, dude, you know what, man, I'm pushing this out. This is nothing. This is all in our head. This is fucking stupid. As he says it, a chandelier dislodges out of the ceiling and knocks him on the head. He's sent to the ER. The angle of which is goddamn chandelier, this thing falls, was impossible. It was an impossible trajectory to fall. Um, massive injuries occurred on the set. No, massive, a massive amount, not massive injuries. Um, from people being pushed down the stairs and breaking legs to falling into weird potholes in the ground that weren't there hours before, to people quitting due to hallucinogens that they thought there was a gas leak in the house. So we kept trying to figure it out, being like, this is not, this, there, there is a logical explanation for this. There is a gas leak, because that would make sense. People are loopy, whatever. Um, so that, the whole experience was so batshit crazy in that, that uh, I started, again, it, it just propelled my research into the weird. Um, yeah. There was another book that I recommend. Uh, it's a great gateway drug into kind of weird beliefs. is a, is a book called Will's Store Versus the Supernatural. If you've never read it, it's a, it's a really light read, but it's fun and it's great. And it was basically this reporter, a journalist, and I, it was either Vanity Fair or Harper's Bazaar. He worked at a, a very big publication, was doing a Halloween issue. 
and they ask him to follow this uh, this this basically um, exorcist type of person, and they wanted to follow him on Halloween. And so he who believes in nothing, this is a true story. He who believes in nothing, and this guy is like, I'm completely agnostic. I don't believe mm-hmm. in anything. He goes out and he follows this guy, and he immediately realizes it's fake. He was like, I I can see the tricks. I understand how it's being done. And so he exposed this guy on the tricks in the in the article, and the guy said. I don't think you're understanding what's actually happening. Come with me again and let me show you what's really happening. So this guy, Will Storr, goes with him again. And this time he can't understand any of it. It doesn't make any logical sense. So he takes a sabbatical from the magazine and follows this guy around for 12 weeks. And each chapter is a different time that he's with the guy. And it's just a fascinating look at the bizarre and supernatural. It's called Will Storr mm-hmm. versus Supernatural. It's one of my favorite books on the subject. I'll check that out and do book recommendations are very welcome on this podcast. And, you know, hearing that makes me think about how, uh, you know, I I feel like there's an evolution when you're raised in a certain faith tradition where various rituals and symbols and things like that have this rich meaning to you as you're young. And then you get to that age, you know, usually adolescence where you start looking at it as like, these are just a bunch of symbols and rituals and they don't mean anything. There's no magic here. And I feel like the truth is probably somewhere more in the middle, almost like what it sounds like that book is describing where on its surface, like I can see all the tricks this guy's doing. And this is like some, you know, shell game con job that he's, that he's pulling on people who believe in this stuff. And then also, you know, that that somewhere in the theater of all of that and the ritual of all of that is where the magic actually exists in the margins of it. I think the power in a lot of this comes in the faith that you put into it. You give mm. it power by your belief. And I think, um, you know, there is power in the cross. If you put a thousand people in a room and they, they're, they're, you know, believing in it and they're, they're putting forth their, you know, belief into it. Um, I think that you give symbols power and you give sigils power by what you put into it. So uh, it's a fascinating thing. Absolutely. And I, and I think that that speaks even to, you know, beyond religion, I think there's a religious magic sort of uh, appeal, attraction, disgust, whatever, whatever it makes you feel. There's visceral feelings that you get from different symbols, whether they represent political ideologies or, you know, what, what have you. Um, so for you to go from 11, 11, 11 and having that experience, because um, I think the next movie after that was Devil's Carnival, right? Yeah. Um, um- yeah, so Devil's, you know, Devil's Carnival was, again, it's another whole kind of, we wanted to make a, a almost, it, it's a quasi-religious story about, you know, where, where what we change it. What if Lucifer was a good guy? Um, what if he runs this, you know, it's this kind of um, misunderstood person that's suffering as well. And uh, so in, in some respects, it's extremely sacrilegious, but we wanted to make it fun and campy. And, uh, you know, I love rock and roll and I love that type of music. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we kind of combined what, and there, there, is some, there are some things at the surface are pretty, pretty rough. Like there's some great lines in there. Like, uh, I'm not in the business of killing little children. That's God's jurisdiction. Like just things <laughs> that are really horrific that yeah. at the surface aren't great. But I think the idea was just, just to show a different side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we, we went into Devil's Carnival. Uh, I think you're right. I think that was right after that. Yeah, so it, it's crazy to, that you, I mean, not crazy, but it's interesting that you came out of that experience and some people might have run from it and said like, you know what, I'm going to do a romantic comedy after going through all of that, you know, and, and instead you're like, I'm going to do a movie about the devil. 
<laughs> you know, like you kind of went right into the fear and the unknown, which I think is yeah. uh, always admirable and interesting yeah. to me. Yeah, I think that uh, it, it was funny. My my son, I did something really stupid. Uh, when my kid was about three and a half, four, we went to Universal Studios and, and he loved, we live right next to Universal. He loved it. And he loves, you know, seeing the minions and doing all of this. And, you know, we went on all the rides that he could go on and we were leaving and there was the tram ride. And um, I, being a fucking idiot as a parent, took him on the tram ride, not even thinking that King Kong is terrifying. It's terrifying mm. for a kid his age. So we go through the tram ride. He sees King Kong and he fucking loses it. He, he just can't handle it. He's crying. He's, he's hyperventilating. And for the next two weeks after King Kong, all he wanted to do was talk about it. He wanted to talk about it. He wanted to understand mm. it. He kept asking me a million questions about it. And you realize that kids deal with fear by trying to understand. And so they, they don't get off it. They, they lean into it. I think in some respects, that's what I do with my own shit that I'm dealing with in my head is I just lean into it. So um, if I'm dealing with something in my life, it usually finds its way into my movies. And I just, mm -hmm. I just lean into it. That brings up an interesting thing too about, uh, you know, even from the sort of, let's say, secular side of life. I did an interview recently with this guy, Paul DeGeller, who's uh, one of the faces of Shark Week. And he's a double, double amputee. He was a, an elite uh, bomb disposal unit diver for the Australian Navy and was attacked by a nine foot long bull shark on a routine training mission, lost a, literally an arm and a leg. And now he's not only like a foremost expert on sharks, he's an advocate for sharks and does all of this educational work. And, uh, you know, did a series with Nat Geo where they went after poachers and, you know, he's, he's vegan, he's big into the sea shepherd. And his perspective, as he explained it to me was, you know, he's like, after, you know, my shark incident, the media would often come to me whenever there was another shark attack or a shark sighting. And I'd be someone they'd want to have on to talk about it because I had been through it. And he goes, so I decided I didn't want to sound like an idiot every time I was on TV. So I started researching sharks and through that process, you know, fell in love with them. And that was his whole thing was like, most fear is fear of the unknown. And the more you face that fear and confront it by diving into it and trying to wrap your head around it and understand it, the, the less scary it becomes. And, and yeah, I, I, I'm like you, I, I, you know, grew up reading Fangoria and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street was my favorite movie. It still is in the horror genre. And uh, also had that, that entryway via Satanic Panic and, you know, seeing Anton LaVey on like Phil Donahue or whatever, you know, and, and the, the theatricality of all of it and the, the surface sort of appeal of it, what, what's most disarming about it is when you go watch, especially in, with the, through the lens of 2020, no pun intended, if you go watch an old clip of Anton LaVey doing a TV interview now, it's like everything he says is totally reasonable. <laughs> well, you know, what's funny is that, is that there was a documentary uh, last year, year and a half ago called uh, Hail Satan. And I recommend watching it because it's, it's funny, again, when you're growing up and you see these things, they are so taboo and they're so evil and you have the parents being like, uh, you know, worried about the, again, the satanic panic kind of thing. But when you actually go in, they're reasonable. When you watch, when you watch Hail Satan, it's a group of basically artists who are, are, are turning their, their nose up at the establishment and saying things like, how is it acceptable that you can put the 10 commandments on the lawn, but you can't put Baphomet. And so they fight for Baphomet, not because they believe in a demon God, but because they're saying it's not okay to have one without the other. If you're going to put the 10 commandments up there, we want our statue up there as well. Um, and then you start realizing what they're actually saying is 
it's it's challenging it's challenging these diehard people who believe in something because that's all they've ever been exposed to versus free thinking. And I found, I found that documentary fascinating. Uh, it's again, it's called hail Satan. Uh, it is, it is, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. Look at that. And, and that's about the temple of Satan guys, right? Who are yeah, different yeah, church yeah. of Satan. Yes. Different, different, completely different thing. They are more, again, it's not dealing with, I guess when I, when I was a kid and I was watching things like that, I thought it was dealing with a, you know, a, a weird demonic God and all of this. And that's, that's yeah. not what that's and neither, not. And, and neither of them are. If anything, no. I, w- I, w- I would say there's a, there's a vague tinge of, of right wing leaningness about church of Satan and then a leftist bent to temple of Satan, um, which is, which yeah. is interesting because yeah, it's like neither of them are actually about supernatural deities. No. Um, yeah. It's really fascinating. So I want to jump into this current film and ask you first a little bit about the process um you know you didn't write this one but it, but it does have your fingerprints on it and that stamp in terms of belief and there was that great director's statement that you put out um about belief and, and how it's involved in this film which i'll, I'll yeah. put that in the show notes um what was the early sort of production process like how did this come across your desk and and how did you know that you could put your your voice into it and make it yours? Any movie, any movie that deals with religion to me or belief or faith is uh, something that I'm always a fan of. You go back and um, you know some of my favorite movies growing up, be it The Omen or The Exorcist, um, or even Wicker Man, something like that. I was going to uh, say not to cut you off, but I meant to say this in my in my question. Uh, this this film reminds me of two of my favorite horror films of all time, which are The Wicker Man and Serpent in the Rainbow. Both, both of them are huge inspirations. And, you know, uh, if I could blatantly steal every scene of Wicker Man, I would. Um, I love that you reference Wicker Man in the yeah. film. because Oh, yeah, movie. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Ten uh, minutes after I thought of Wicker Man, that joke happened and I was like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anytime that there's a movie that kind of deals in religion, um, I, I just, I want to read it. I love it. Um, and so this didn't necessarily deal with religion. It dealt with faith and it dealt with belief and it dealt with the original script. It dealt with voodoo. Mm. And so I read it and my concern, it was a lot of logistical concerns about where we could film this and set this to, to make it believable. But I had seen uh, a fair number of movies that dealt in kind of the voodoo belief. Uh, and I, I said, is there any way to take the same idea of the story, which is that I love the high concept hook, which is a, a, a woman um, and husband wake up with no recollection of the night before and they search mm-hmm. the phone and they find this video of the man killing the woman, but they're both very much alive. So I thought that was a great hook, like a horror version of Hangover. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't but, even make that connection. That's uh, great. Yeah. How, how can I do that in a, in a little more unique way that did not rely on the concept of voodoo dolls and all of that, which it originally sure. did. So we, we started doing some research and we found... Um, we found a book that talked about um, a belief that dealt with, you know, a little th- a thing in Southeast Asia a long time ago called pillars. And the idea of this pillar was, is that, that this town would basically bury or sacrifice people in the, in the, in the pillar of town, with the center of town, which basically would watch over and protect the town. And uh, upon digging up these pillars, they would find bones of what they assumed to be pregnant women. And so that Steve Lehman idea took the idea, okay, can we, can we expound this mythology and, uh, you know, do it in that, in that kind of way? So that, that's where the idea came from. Um, but 
what I kind of love about it and what I loved Wicker Man is when you watch Wicker Man, the, the people of the island are not bad people. They're not right. nefarious serial killers. They are people that have a belief and they believe that they need good harvest and good crops and good health. And so to do that, it requires a sacrifice. Well, there's been sacrifices in, in, in our world since the dawn of time. That's mm -hmm. not a new thing. I mean, that's, so, that's the Christian story is Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Ex exactly. So knowing that sacrifices are so prevalent in religion, um, you know, we, we just took that idea of imagining a town where they're not evil, they're not bad, they just require a sacrifice and, and this, this woman will be this chosen sacrifice. And I think some of my favorite things in the script are not the violence and the gore and the supernaturally thingies, it's the small moments where you see people bowing to her as she walks mm -hmm. down, or people giving her gifts. Hugging her. And hugging yeah. her. Yeah, and hugging her. Like, oh, those, thank you. Exactly. <laughs> I, yeah. love those, I love those type of things because um, you realize that, you know, it's an honor. What she's doing for them, it's, it's she should be honored that she's giving her life to save thousands. Um, and I think that's just a scary, uh, scary thing. And on top of that, you have a stranger in a strange land. Um, you know, they're, hmm. they're stuck here through circumstance, through the storm that's bearing down on the island. They can't get out. Uh, and no one's speaking English to them outside of really the... Uh, the, the woman, Alex Essos, where they live. And I love that idea from, from shooting all over the world. One of the scariest things is, is, is you're in a place and you can't communicate. And to mm -hmm. me, that's always a thing is, is how to work up that kind of communication. So all of those elements together, I thought could be really cool. And yeah. a chance to go to Thailand, which, which I've never been. And to shoot a movie there, I thought which would just been an awesome thing. So that's mm -hmm. all kind of together. Yeah, and you know, and from an optics standpoint, I don't know that you could make Servant in the Rainbow right now in the same way where it's, you know, a white person immersed in, in the foreign land of, mm -hmm. of Haiti. Um, and I thought that that was a really smart choice and a very uh, progressive, progressive way to tell this story in that you have, you know, as your lead, um, this Vietnamese American actress who got her start in Hong Kong. So, yes. so it immediately eliminates that feeling of like, oh, this is a story where the terror is, is the other because they're yeah. Asian. You know, it's like, no, yeah. they're, uh, they're other because they're other. This is like a well, different culture, different belief system. Yeah. We, uh, we struggled. You know, one thing that it concerns me is we do live in a different age now. You can't make movies like you could 30 or 40 years ago, nor I think should you. Right. Um, so one of, the, one of the concerns that I had is, is that if you're, if you're making them the killers of this woman, whether it's nefarious or not, I didn't want us to portray them as villainous. So one of the things that we tried to do was, is there's a couple of lines in there we talked where they say, this, these are people that have come from all over. And if you go back mm -hmm. and watch the movie, two of the biggest proponents of this are Westerners. It's mm -hmm. Alex Besto's character and like the guy at the diner, the beach cafe, mm -hmm. that are, are pushing her on this kind of thing. So um, that, was, that was something important to me to say that this was not about a place, it was about a belief. And the belief could spawn from whether you're Asian or you're Western or whatever, whatever it is you are. So that was, that was something that we Absolutely. tried to do. And I, I love, I love that there's, you know, in this whole conversation about religion and belief and everything, I love that this film grapples with, which, which, which wasn't something that I saw coming and not that it, I don't think it's any kind of spoiler, but it grapples with the idea of, of free will. Yeah. It grapples with identity, uh, faith healing, uh, you know, there's a lot of different things happening. Um, our perceptions of reality. Uh, I love that early on in the film, the idea of a hallucinogenic is introduced because it leaves you as the, as the audience questioning various things as they're unfolding and, and 
you know, well, what's, that, what's his that's it. something that it's something that for me as a, as a viewer, I love movies that give me an out if I choose not to believe the supernatural. Mm. Um, and I think that that was something that we really wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that you could watch this and believe that it was a supernatural thing at play or every scene before she has one of these visions, she's dosed and we give you both versions. So if you notice, um, every time Maggie does something, either she's drinking something right before it, whether Alex Essos is pushing her here, have a shake, have this smoothie, or the doctor's being like, here, try this, put this on you, or she's going to the diner and getting the soup or the cafe, um, that we, we try to give you two parallel things happening here. So if you wish to believe that it's the drug, the nominal pry, it's yeah. given to you, and it's also showing this other thing as well, which is the island's power. Yeah, and wow, and, and, and that, that's, uh, I, I socially distanced, uh, watched the film with a friend of mine, last night, also a horror nerd. And um, that was the first thing I said to him when it was over, is I said, ah, oh, yeah, it's one of those movies where um, you, can, you can say this was all, you can have a practical, logical explanation for everything you saw, or yeah. it can all be magic. <laughs> yeah, know, that's, and that's, I, love, I love that too. That's, I, and I, I love, love that. Is like, when you look at movies like Jacob's Ladder and things like that, I, mm-hmm. I think the coolest part of those type of movies is it allows the audience to, to think what they want to think and doesn't mm-hmm. say either is right or wrong. Like, because that's life. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like that's, that's how we have to look at all of these things in life. Exactly. Yeah. And I love, you know, and I, and I think both, both of us being lovers of music, um, I've often identified that a lot of my favorite bands, you know, you can see the components and the ingredients, but it's that combination of things that haven't been combined before. And then through the unique lens of the people who are making that music that creates something new. So it's like, yeah. you can look at Metallica and go, well, there's Motorhead and there's Diamond Head. And, yeah. but it's like, but then it's like, you got this Danish guy and this guy from, you know, yeah. Russian scientist parents. And it's like, it all turns into its own thing. And, and that's um, the thing I've really, number one, loved the absolute most about this film. And I gravitate because I'm into these ideas and conversations. I, I gravitate towards movies like this anyway, yeah. but I love that there were those little elements of, of, uh, of other things without being, uh, copies, you know, without being yeah. clones of any of those movies. Um, <clears throat> and it, it made me think about, uh, gosh, what was I going to say? Because there was one other, I was, it's, I was thinking a lot about Serpent in the Rainbow and Wicker Man, but there was something else in there that it's escaping me now. But, um, oh, I know what it was. Uh, the first time you see the uh, the green drink. Here, have yeah. some juice. I thought, yeah. ah, Rosemary's, Rosemary's baby. baby. Rosemary's baby, the tanner. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that way and it was and it was nice because if you speak that sort of language of film, it gives you a clue as to what's coming without being a spoiler, you know, it's like kind of a harbinger. Whereas and if you don't, then you miss so, it and, and it doesn't yeah. hurt or you know Rosemary's Baby is one of my absolute all time favorites, not only books but movies. Um it is uh you know, Ruth Gordon's character in that is is my one of my favorite, and 100% Alex Essos is ripped off of Ruth Gordon, uh, that character, because it's the overly nice person that is manipulating without realizing that they're manipulating. Here, drink this, have a have a drink, you know, wear the necklace. It, it's 100% yeah. the Ruth Gordon character in, uh, in Rosemary's Baby. I love it. And those, and those characters are often the most sinister because it's, it's all kindness and smiling and and I love yeah as you said when you're somewhere that you don't you can't communicate and so on and so forth you immediately gravitate to that character because you feel that she's some kind of anchor in reality yeah. that our protagonists understand exactly so super cool uh well I gotta I gotta ask you this before I let you go um 
you know, the next thing obviously being this uh, Saw franchise, which is where yeah. most people know you from. And uh, obviously looks very exciting and people are really interested in, in this one. Um, given everything we just talked about and all the themes of this podcast and, and so many of the uh, ideas that percolate and go through all of your films, is there any of this sort of stuff uh, that show, cause you know, saw sort of the, the opposite of a supernatural horror, but yeah. is there, do you get to, do you get to grapple with any of life's big questions in, in this upcoming movie? Yeah, you do. It does. It's not, not a religious kind of thing, but we absolutely deals with uh, specifically Chris Rock's character um, is dealing with uh, some baggage, which I, and I think many others will find themselves dealing with. Um, more so in a relationship with father and son, which mm. uh, with uh, Samuel Jackson plays his dad. Um, so, you know, we, we definitely, we definitely get into stuff like that. Um, and we definitely get into philosophies. I think one of the things I love about the Saw franchise in general is the philosophies of what the killer is doing. If you go mm. back and watch what Jigsaw is doing, it's very, I mean, it's a philosophy. He's, He's trying to basically teach people to appreciate what they have, their life, because there's so many out there that don't have that opportunity. They're dying of cancer, they, whatever. And then you look and you see someone smoking a cigarette and you're realizing my dad or whoever died of lung cancer and here you are having a cigarette. Do you realize how fucked up this is? So I, I love that about the Saw franchise. And I think that Spiral definitely has a lot of that at play. Uh, too early to tell you what that is yet, but there's definitely some sure. stuff there. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, you're right. And Jigsaw is definitely motivated by a belief, which I think is, um, yeah, absolutely. That, that's what makes the most compelling. I mean, you know, I, I tell, I tell my own kids that the, the best stories are the ones where the villain thinks they're the hero. You know? Absolutely. No villain thinks he is the villain. And I think that that's what makes them specifically Jigsaw because he's, if you really listen to what he's saying, I kind of buy into it. It's like, He's taken it to the extreme, but it, it makes sense. And the key, he's definitely not the he's definitely not the villain in his story at all. Yeah, and and, and of course, uh, Chris Rock's character, his detective, is named Ezekiel, which is you know yes, a not lost on me. A, a nice religious name there. Yeah, the significance of that. Uh, last thing, uh, Max Minkella. Yes, just tell me about but, working with him. <laughs> he was incredible, and I think that there's certain actors that there's a gravitas when they step mm -hmm. on set. I mean, first off, he comes from like this 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 insane family. Like his father is this an insanely talented director. Um, so, but he is. Um, there was a weight when he stepped on set, um, and there was something. He he would hyper focus on every word that he said, and he had to make sure that that word not only made sense to him, but he can sell it in a believable way. There's certain actors you get that look at the script and say, "Okay, I'll say this." And you get other actors like Max that's like, why am I saying this? Explain to me why I'm ending a sentence in a preposition. Is that because I didn't go to school or I'm trying to fit? I mean, he was very hyper-focused into every word that he said. Um, and he's awesome. He, he is, yeah. is awesome in the movie and he was awesome to work with. He comes from such a cool lineage, as you mentioned. And, uh, yeah, and I, I really loved him uh, in uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Because he, yeah. he was, yeah, like you said, he has a certain, he's young, but he has a certain gravitas where he really anchors. Absolutely. Those kind of actors can anchor a, a, a wild story in, in some reality by just coming across as so I, 100 you know, agree. heavy. So, well, dude, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I was course, really excited I, to make it happen and, and, and to also really, you know, it's been musicians and authors on the podcast so far, and I really wanted to open the door to filmmakers. Um, 
Well, it's awesome yeah. being on, man. Thank oh. you so much for having me. And I will tell Shawnee you said hello. Please do. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. Have Thanks, a good rest man. of your day. Bye. All right, bye. Bye. Thank you.